life is good in Los Angeles. It's paradise on earth. That's what they tell you, anyway. And if the uh, Silver Lake Trader Joe's parking lot is any indication, life might actually be a little bit of hell on earth in Los Angeles. Hi, my name is Mark, IT guy, dad, and generally bad movie nerd. And today we're going to be talking about LA Confidential. That that first line was a little excerpt uh, from the opening monologue by Danny DeVito in the role of Sid Hudgens. If you haven't seen the movie, you you should definitely 110% see this movie. I will be talking some things that are hard spoilers, just forewarning, but I won't be I won't be dissecting the plot of the movie. And the reason for that primarily is that the plot is very 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 dense, but I'll be kind of talking around it maybe, not around it, but just not focusing on that. So I won't be going out of my way to avoid the plot, um, but I will be going out of my way to focus on things that are not plot-specific, but some of the things do relate to the plot, and that is part of what makes this movie good. What makes this movie good is the attention paid to it, the, the dare I say it, the love of the subject matter, the love of the locations, the love of the characters put into it. And as we get into it, it, can I say it one more time? Am I a knight who says knee? No, you said it again. Now I said it. Um, yeah, no. So, you know what? It's a, it's a rainy evening. It's 1953. It's 1953. Raining. Walter Cronkite voice. I, I'll, I'll, I'll just do the sound design thing now, and then we'll jump jump right in. So I suppose I assume, assume that we should just jump right into this and call this out for a couple of things. First off, this is not, or definitely was not intended, but also does not traditionally fit the mold of the film noir. As we know it, film noir is um, characterized by shadows, uh, primarily like uh, chiaroscuro is actually what they called it, which is like a type of coal drawing where you where the light is almost the negative space of the of the art and that is traditionally what has inspired film noir this is not that and there are a couple of reasons behind that and uh curtis hansen says that you know primarily one of the ones is that film noir doesn't make money 
But what this is, though, is a, a period mystery. And there is a genuine appreciation for the history, the period, and historic Los Angeles. Uh, Curtis Hansen is where we'll go next, Curtis Hansen. Um, but he, um, he grew up in the area, and, and he is a, a very long and tenured Angelino, I guess is actually the, the name for people who live in Los, Angel Los, An Los Angeles, Los Angeles and are, are from there. So it was his, his love for that growing up, right? And he, uh, he really, he didn't create this from whole cloth, but, or he did the movie, I should say, maybe, but there's a lot going on. So I guess we could talk briefly about historic LA. Um, Curtis Hansen presented this movie through a series of about uh, 18 to 20 pictures as a, as a pitch. And this would be to suit the purpose of really providing a, a vision to producers and actors and things like that. And one of them was an old postcard, which is actually the opening shot of the movie. Um, and he wanted to hit upon all these very important, important of the time. Trap trappings is the, not the word that I'm looking for, but uh, concepts, right? So single family homes you know, freeways, businesses, farming, industry, and things like that in Los Angeles. And, you know, the very wholesome and optimistic view of Los Angeles at the time. You could go be a movie star or whatever, you know, start a business. But in that montage, well, that montage he has uh, right at the beginning of the movie is narrated by Sid Hudgens, who is the writer of Hush Hush Magazine, which is a stand-in for Confidential Magazine, which was, you know, kind of like one of the first tabloids. And it really serves to pull back that idea of this positive outlook of Los Angeles. It's really exposing the seedy underbelly. And he also, I believe in that first montage, shows you the interior of the Formosa restaurant, which the Formosa was a very, um, it is a historical restaurant that was closed briefly in 2016, but it was due to reopen sometime. I don't actually currently know if it's open, but it was built in 1925 and had very heavy movie star patronage. It um, has a very characteristic black and red interior, which you see throughout the movie because they go there a couple of times. And it is very iconic. It is very uh, lush in its darkness, I would say. And it's also reminiscent of uh, Musso and Frank's, which is um, Michael Connolly, who the writer of the Harry Bosch books, points out often. And it's kind of like a similar thing, a very historic restaurant with a iconic, maybe, history, iconic people visiting these places. And I think there's a lot of similar motivations there. The Michael Connolly books integrate a lot of Los Angeles Hollywood landmarks in the books. And I'm not saying that anyone copied anybody here because the Michael Connolly books, I think, started in 88, 89 or so. And uh, James Elroy wrote L.A. Confidential in 94, but it was a sequel. It's, it's 
or it's a part of a series, which isn't apparent. You can read it as a standalone, and it's totally okay. But I feel like there was a lot of similar motivations there in the look for the nostalgia of maybe of um, a, a golden age. I use that lightly because I think they both kind of understand the actual machinations that work behind it. But I think Elroy brings that more to the front than Michael Connolly in his books. So maybe I shouldn't jump on to Curtis Hansen, but maybe start on James Elroy. And I think I'll do that, and I'll start with the book. And before I start with the book, I'll see that there's a TV movie that was like a pilot for a show starring Kiefer Sutherland as Jack Vincennes. And I have um, in my notes, and I quote, like, what the fuck, end quote. And uh, quote, just why, end quote. But I was, I was pretty confused for a few minutes uh, as to how it was going, but it seemed to be a, a more in-depth, less faithful adaptation of the book. And it didn't feel... Okay, so the sets and the locations felt pretty good, but, but the, the, the wardrobe was a little looser. It was fine. It was okay. Um, but just in general, it felt more like L.A. Noir than L.A. Confidential. And I mean, I get it. It was like a a pilot for a TV show. So, you know, budgets and, and things. And it was all set up, no payoff, right? They're like, we need to set up this TV series. So let's start a bunch of storylines and mysteries, but pay nothing off. And that's what that was. So it, don't, don't watch the, that 2003 TV movie expecting the 97 movie. There's also, I believe, a 2018 TV movie that I really didn't have time to track down. But I'm going to assume that it's something similar, but I believe that uh, Mark Webber is Bud White, and that's interesting. The casting is very interesting in that one. Can't come up with anybody else from it right now, off the top of my head, off the dome. But, yeah. So, James Elroy's book, right? And James Elroy, in the special features, said, um, and I quote, It was a book for the whole family if the name of your family was the fucking Manson family. End quote. And the, I guess, uh, lesson there is that James Elroy is a bit of a douche. There's a lot of, uh, you know, grade A douche tier bravado from him in there. But in between all that, or maybe the editing kind of arranged all that, you'll find that he has genuine appreciation for the movie because of how different it is and why it is different, right? And James Elroy even confesses that um, the book was massive. Uh, the plot is insane, insanely convoluted, and there was no way that he could make a movie. So he fully understood that the movie is the essence of his book in distilled into a manageable format, right? And there was a lot, like, Vincent's story was huge, you know, less to do with Pierce, no shooting, you know, got rid of the wild, crazy tie-ins with the Badge of Honor people. Like, there was there were so many characters, right? Uh, Exley's story was slimmed down. His father was dead in the movie as opposed to being a character like he was in the book, and there was no, you know, 
Disney tie-in, right? There's a character whose name escapes me in the book, but who was essentially a stand-in for like Walt Disney. Um, there's a whole backstory about his fake war hero status, which also was a very L.A. Noir thing. And I'm just going to say, in general, a lot of this was everybody who worked on L.A. Noir probably saw everything connected to L.A. Confidential and read it. Because if you didn't, you're, you're doing a bad job at your actual job. So then White's story was also slimmed down. The uh, Dick Stensland thing is, is more powerful in the movie because it is so much less maybe. No, like, tracking down of serial killers. And, and the, you know, the book takes place over years, right? So these characters change and things like that. You know, there was no love triangle with White and Inez and White and Lynn and Inez and Exley's dad and Walt Disney, like, Walt Disney stand-in. I'm sorry, I keep saying Walt Disney. I, it's not Walt Disney. It's a character inspired maybe by the idea of Walt Disney. I'm, I'm going to pause here and find that character's name. And hilariously enough, I can't find it on the internet, so I'm not going to sweat it. But it is a stand-in for that kind of very rich theme park type uh, mogul. So that's all gone, right? And there's still so much in in this movie, right? Hudgens was different. He, Hudgens in the book is like he's a dick in the movie, but he's a grade A fuckface in the book. Um, the Dudley reveal is in the first couple of pages, but maybe we would have known Dudley from previous books, so that wasn't a reveal in the book universe, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot. It's um, it's definitely more violent, more racist, more crass, more more. It's it's more right. Even all the main characters were extremely unlikable, all of them, top to bottom. The movie gets you to go places where you're like, I don't feel great about this person, but in general. I, I felt like the movie characters were, if maybe having unsavory sides to them, were, were, were generally likable versus the book where at points you're just like, fuck this guy, I hope this guy dies. And interestingly enough, maybe the most sympathetic of the book characters is maybe the least sympathetic in the movie. Or, or maybe not. I mean, that's also that's also a personal kind of uh it's also a personal kind of evaluation but we can start talking about curtis hansen now curtis hansen was a director he was producer director and screenwriter on la confidential 1997's la confidential and previously he had done the hand that rocks the cradle as a director the river wilds as a director and Sweet Kill, a 1972 kind of slasher movie as a director, and it doesn't, he was also a screenwriter, he also, uh, his one of his first movies was the, the Dunwick Horror, you know, a 1970 adaptation of a Lovecraft story, and IMDB had a review uh, that said, quote, surely Roger Corman should have exercised a stronger hand over this one. Or somebody should have. Still, it's fun and kind of different. Will not particularly please H.P. Lovecraft fans. End quote. He was also a screenwriter on Sweet Kill, which is um, a horror and suspense in the story of a psychotic 
maniac who literally loves women to death, which is both gross, disgusting, and disturbing. But what's interesting about this um, is that he teams up on the screenplay with Brian Helgeland, who also started out as like a horror slasher writer who wrote uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, 976 Evil, 976 Evil Part 2, and then after L.A. Noir went on to write A Knight's Tale, Mystic River, Conspiracy Theory, The Postman, Payback, Man on Fire, and a bunch of other stuff. He works a lot. Curtis Hansen comes in as the producer on L.A. Confidential, and he's like, I'm trying to make this movie. He has his photo presentation, and he's focusing on maybe the, the less obvious aspects of the period to ensure that people understand this isn't a film noir. This isn't Humphrey Bogart with his hand in his coat in the vestibule of a, a dark and rainy hotel kind of thing, you know. This is a different look. This is a different feel. And it's going to be more contemporary. But he comes in with this vision already basically fully formed, right? So the book had come out already. But I think at the point that Helgeland and Hansen read the book, they're already both trying to pitch for this movie. And, and Helgeland was pitching the week after Hansen to make this movie. And they called Helgeland and told him, oh, no, you know, Curtis Hansen's going to make this movie. But then they also hooked him up so that they could write it together, which I think worked out extremely well. Curtis Hansen's, I guess, concept start to finish with story, direction, uh, music, and visuals gives this really clean and thorough idea through the entirety of the medium. And I'm not going to say that it's the entire work of one man because it's not. There's a wonderful casting director, wonderful production designers, costume designers. Obviously, the cast, the actors are stellar. The cinematographer Eleanor might be one of my more favored movies in the way that it was shot. All, the, all these people worked really, really hard, so it's not the work of one man, but maybe the vision of, of one man, and that man is Curtis Hansen, and he had a lot of help. So that assisted the movie in kind of being what it is and, and going that that extra mile. And I, I feel the same way about movies that are written, directed by, you know, a couple of others, um, Edgar Wright being one of them, who is just so unique in how he sees the movie start to finish that having him involved in every step of that is maybe very important for the end result, the end product. So, you know, both of these guys were pitching this same movie and, uh, there's a quote from them that, uh, they both knew that, and I quote, extraordinary liberties would need to be taken, would have to be taken with that convoluted, dense plot of Elroy, right? So, and the book is insanely complicated for a 450-page book. I was expecting like a thousand pages after I got done with it. Um, but they tried to get to the core of, of the people versus like keeping like, oh, well, we need all these plot points. They're like, no, no, we need these these arcs for the characters. And, you know, like I said, the book takes place over like maybe like five, six years, I think. It's a few years. Um, but they had to distill that into maybe uh, months or, you know, just about a year in total to make this movie kind of work out. And there are some, some gaps of time that we don't really, it's not like two months later, you know, or anything like that. But through context, we get that. 
you know, it's been some months, some weeks, whatever, just because things take time. So, I mean, there's definitely set pieces that came over from the book, and there's certain things that came over from the book, but, you know, it was very manageable compared to the book, and it still maintained the, the three main character, like, aspect of it, where these are, are three dudes going on this intertwined, interrelated, but different roller coasters. So, kind of like... Um, the Fire and Ice roller coaster at Universal is now the Harry Potter Dueling Dragons or whatever. Kind of like that. It's, two di it's three different rides, but they're all located on the same plot of land. So I talked about, <clears throat> I talked about the visuals, and I'm going to talk about the visuals and the music and, and stuff like that now. And the director of photography is a, a gentleman by the name of Dante Spinotti. And Dante had worked um, a bit with Michael Mann, and, and it's, it's my opinion that Michael Mann makes very visually interesting movies. Heat uh, is a movie that Dante Spinotti actually worked on, but I also actually like the Miami Vice movie. Not because it's good, but because it looks really, really, really cool. And Dante Spinotti was also a DP on Beaches, and worked like a ton in Italy. I, I'm not familiar with any of that, so I can't really speak to it. But um, Curtis Hansen, you know, kind of was, was talking to Dante, and he's like, I don't want it to look like a film noir. And Dante Spinotti replies, what's a film noir? And you get that, right? It's a very um, contemporary look and feel. Old movies looked empty, right? Uh, like, cheesy like the wall it was a bare wall all the time there was nobody in the street ever and things like that and these are these are, are details that as a modern viewer we notice we don't notice but subconsciously it feels cheap and cheesy to us right so this was definitely a more naturalistic look and we have very obvious sources of light if not entirely practical sources of light in the movie and the movie is primarily in the daytime, and there's, there's good light, a beautiful light in the movie. You know, the light of Southern California, right? So this is like um, a very interesting look, contrary to film noir, which, like I said, was a chiaroscuro. And, you know, these long shadow, sharp shadows and, and, and points of light and things like that, that really only kind of happens at the shootout at the end, and when it happens, it is such a welcome change. That's one of the few scenes like shot at night in the entire movie. Most of the movies in the daytime, and that's wonderful. That's great. Dante Spinotti was very aware of his actors, or not his actors, but the actors, the performers, right? He was very aware of the set dressing, set design, and the costume design, right? And a lot of the movies actually handheld, which maybe is a bit unusual, or it, I think it's unusual for the time, definitely. But it's not like a manic, frenetic camera, and it's not like a Tony Scott camera, and it's not a Michael Bay camera. It is mostly handheld, and most of the camera movement is subtle and meant to kind of underline the scene, 
underline the actor's performance, right? So if there's a building anxiety, the camera might do like a super slow push with a little bit of that handheld kind of motion. So it's not that you're like on a boat and uh, it's rocking or anything. It's just such a tiny thing that to the casual observer, to the casual movie watcher, they wouldn't, they might not even notice, right? And not only that, but just it's such a wonder the, the placement of the camera, like Lynn Bracken's apartment is very interesting of itself because there's, there's essentially two levels to it or her home, right? Which has the, 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 the downstairs, which is all dressed up with these satin curtains and these, this deep kind of long living area with different archways and things like that. So much drama. And, you get to kind of shoot down that hallway and it gives it so much depth and, and majesty, but then her upstairs is very normal, very plain, you know, very Bisbee, Arizona, as it would be as, as Lynn Bracken is versus her Veronica Lake persona. And there's no, there's no sepia grading, there's no orange grading. This is a very contemporary feeling film. Not contemporary in the way of like Gone in 60 Seconds or any of that action, orange and teal BS. This is, it feels modern now, even to me now in 2019. It feels correct. It feels good. It is sunlight and shadow, basically, uh, I think is, is what Curtis Hansen wanted to call it. Like, just use that, that Los Angeles light to its fullest. And it feels like they did. And there, there are all also a lot of uh, tight shots on the actors and things like that. You know, like I mentioned, those slowly underlining camera moves. But you know, the secret there also is that tight shots can usually save money, and you don't have to have so much stuff in the background, so many people in the background, and things like that with a tight shot. But the wides, the wide shots definitely feel full. They have a lot of period correct automobiles. They have people on the street in period correct costume and things like that. So it's all very cool. Um, Ruth Miles was the costume designer, and she was focusing on things that were true to the period, but with an accent to the modern. So we don't feel like they're wearing like goofy old clothing. Their clothing feels generally just fine. Um, you know, Bud White's in, in these, these browns and, and earth colors, Exley's in these grays and blues is like very cold colors to reflect his like calculating nature vincennes is like flashier like almost like a movie star because he is almost like a movie star uh there was uh again the scene in uh lynn bracken's apartment where she's wearing that satin dress uh dante spinotti actually reset up the shot to be able to feature the back on her dress because it was so striking so amazing and it's that synergy between departments with that guiding vision of the director who's like, yes, that is, that is the right move that makes movies from merely good to great, right? That elevates the, the production of these movies, that everybody's kind of working towards a common goal that is not necessarily to the detriment or benefit of their own department, but everybody's helping everybody and lift everybody up, you know, the rising tide. We'll raise all ships. You know, so there's a lot going on. 
in the visuals. There's a lot going on in the lighting. And watching this movie is ultimately the best way to, to describe that. I'm, I'm attempting it, but I'm also, I think, doing a not perfect job at it. But when you see the movie, you'll understand that it's, that it's messier, that it's busier than the movies of that actual time. Right, it's not that cheesy oldness to it. It is very modern. The music is also great on on in this movie. Uh, Curtis Hansen had already had a lot of music, popular music of the time, picked out, but uh, Jerry Goldsmith had to create some original scoring, but also make it feel like it's in the same movie as as all that music and it, the score here heavily features the trumpet. So I had written that little piano piece in the, the little sound design kind of bumper, and I couldn't get a good trumpet or, or, or bass VST or anything to save my life, but I got that little electric piano thing, and I, I liked it. But this trumpet is iconic, and this trumpet is maybe influenced by film noir, definitely. Def you know, that's a, an instrument of the time. But also went on to influence further, and again, I will mention L.A. Noir. I feel like a lot of the L.A. Noir music was heavily influenced by Jerry Goldsmith's actual score. Uh, Andrew Hale, I think, definitely, you know, had this in the palette of L.A. Noir, right, as he would so many things, because L.A. Noir was in itself influenced by all these things. So, there's that. Um, the editing of this movie is also fairly interesting, because there are there are maybe shots that would be shorter in other places and shots that might be a little longer in other movies and one one of the things that guy pierce said is that curtis hansen is about stillness and the close up and the way that that close up becomes powerful is not by overacting or acting big or anything but but being still having the character be in that moment one of the really good examples of that is when Jack Vincennes is shot and he's dying. They extend that take, that, that shot, up until the point that Kevin Spacey could not, move his, could not keep his eyes still any longer. And they even do, a, I think, a J-cut over that, where the audio from the, the next scene is, is overlapping his essentially dead eyes. And they hold it for so long. Right, they hold it for so long, and it's such a powerful moment. Even you know, with the J cut on it, even more so, I think. And I really, I really loved that that shot and that performance. So, uh, editor was Peter Honus on that. I don't really know too too much about Peter. Again, apologies. There's a lot to go into in this movie, and life has been quite busy. This movie, ultimately, is a movie about images and perception, and one would say that Los Angeles is a city about images and perception. And I, that's not an accident. You know, we had reality mixed with fiction in this story, and this, the story is, is also a bit about the difference between image and perception, but maybe not illustrated with quite a fine point, right? Mickey Cohen was a real person. Johnny Stampanato was a real person. Lana Turner was a real person. You know, 
and it casts unknown actors, so there was no, there was no, we were not putting anything on the weight of the image of the actors even, and we would discover the characters through the movie versus the fact that, you know, like, for example, let's say Chris Hemsworth shows up, right? We know that he's going to be a very handsome, strong dude, and we put that expectation on him, like any of the if Robert Downey Jr. shows up, we know he's going to be a fast-talking, really slick, kind of quippy guy, right? We put that on the actors even before we've seen the movie. And having unknown actors not only helped the budget of the movie, the movie was not terribly expensive, uh, something like $15 million, which was great. But it also... I, I, watching this movie, had no expectations, and I just, I went along with it. It was the first time I had seen Guy Pierce. It was probably the first time I had seen Russell Crowe, because I don't think I've ever seen The Quick and the Dead. You know, things like that. Um, I knew who Kevin Spacey was, but I didn't really have much to go on. So, ultimately, the movie is just the development of these characters to me, the audience, with no prior baggage, which is maybe the best way to make a movie, if, if you can do that. But going back to the image and the reality thing, you know, we have uh, three main characters who are, who are definitely at odds with themselves. Uh, Bud White is a, a dumb thug, but it turns out that he is, it turns out that he is sensitive and, and insecure, ultimately. And he wants to be respected, He's not for beating people up, but for, for working cases, for solving crimes. Jack Vincennes seems to be a vain, vapid shell of a cop, seduced by Hollywood. But ultimately, he, he does have a conscience, and ultimately, he does regain his purpose. You know, and, and Exley seems like a, a power-hungry wimp. But ultimately, he proves himself to be capable of all the violence, and he proves himself capable of having the integrity that he talked about. He has it in spades. And the only character really in the movie that does know exactly who they are, really, ultimately, is Lynn Bracken. And she has purposefully separated her public persona or professional persona, as it would be, with her private persona. And it's telling that she chooses who to reveal that to and all that. But it's a, a wonderful thematic kind of center point on the whole thing, that she is the one who knows who she is. But I, th I think at the end of the day, it's the facade of, of Los Angeles, which is the American dream, but in reality, you get this kind of shitty, seedy, underbelly of an existence going on. So, in terms of the the actual movie itself, like like talking about the actual movie, really the first uh, couple sequences, or well, the first four sequences, probably will 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 sum up maybe the rest of it, right? So, you get that a uh, monologue that. Danny DeVito delivers uh, via narration as Sid Hudgens, and it's, it's very cute. 
and it gives you everything you need to know in preamble and really gives us a good idea of who Sid Hudgens is, even before we've seen him. Then Bud White is introduced, and he is clearly a thug, and he is he hates women beaters, which is a setup for when he meets Lynn, which is a setup for Stensland to see Meeks, and which is a setup for Pierce Paget. Bud White has no issues going above the rules, and they're doubling down the Stensland angle for the movie. Then Jack Vincennes is introduced, and he is Hollywood as hell. Like, he is famous. He's at a Christmas party for a TV show, Badge of Honor, which is based on roughly Dragnet, which I did watch as a child. Not as it went, but on, on reruns. And they're doubling down with Sid Hudgens on that, right? They do the setup for Matt Reynolds, which is then the setup for the DA and the whole Fleur de Lis thing. And they also set up paying attention to Edmund Exley as Watch Commander because they mention the Watch Commander in that sequence. And then Ed Exley is there and he's being interviewed. And we know that Ed Exley has a rock star cop dad and he's single, as are the others, because they are, you know, working or whatever. Technically working, quote unquote, even though Bud White is buying a bunch of booze for the station and Jack Vincennes is drunk at a Christmas party, and they double down with Dudley Smith. Dudley Smith is uh, heavily introduced with Edmund Exley, and they have a very pointed conversation where Dudley Smith asks Edmund a few questions, and those questions are no's, but they become yeses at the end of the movie, all of them. And it also sets up Exley for testi testifying in the bloody Christmas case. So, we also know that he's uptight and he's an achiever and all these things. So already, like, this is a very, like, very, very, very tight first, I don't know, five minutes, ten minutes, maybe? No, ten minutes feels too long. Five to seven minutes, maybe. It's super tight. There's, there's very dense information about these characters that we're dealing with. Immediately after Exley, I think we go and we meet Lynn and things like that, so... Again, if you've ever seen the Tim Rogers um, video that's an hour long about the first 10 minutes of Legend of Zelda Link to the Past, or the video of Shigeru Miyamoto on the first level of Super Mario Brothers, it is important, important, so vitally important that you, without being luxury, preachy, or, or without a feeling like you're going to school, you are educating your audience about these people so that when when things start happening, we understand them as characters, we understand their reactions. And it makes sense to us. At no point does this movie not make sense. This movie always makes sense. So in this time span, we, we, we know that there's a lot to these characters, but we also know that these sets are balling out of control. All these filming locations feel so great and real. The lighting is gorgeous. The image quality is extremely high. I was watching this on Blu-ray, and it is positively gorgeous. Again, those, those very slight camera moves, but they're focused on the, on the actors. Strong composition. Strong composition in some of these shots. There's a, 
a, a side shot of Bud White's patrol car and you see Bud White in the front seat and Stensland in the back seat and in profile and it's wonderful. Um, there's the scene of the, the 3D scene, almost like a Jaws, Steven Spielberg-like scene with the Pearl Violator, Extreme Foreground, Bud White, and the Battered Wife in the background. You know, which is beautiful. Uh, immediately after, we see Exley uh, Steel Yard balanced against Dudley, who is singing uh, some Christmas song in the background, out of focus. But having watched this enough, I, I see it and I know it. And, and we see in that that they could be represented as different ends of uh, a seesaw or a scale, right? And then they also have a, a, a very, very, very interesting shot immediately after of, again, a profile shot, Exley looking up at Cromwell. James Cromwell, who plays Dudley Smith, is much taller than Guy Pierce, who plays Edmund Exley. And it's a very thematically on-the-nose shot, and it's, it's wonderful. It really is. So, like, I scratched the surface of this movie. If you think that I just like, oh, I didn't watch it. No, I, I watched it, and I have... I didn't take notes on the actual plot of the movie itself because it was already too much that I had. And of the notes that I had, I skipped a bunch because this movie is so much. It is so dense, and the book is likewise incredibly dense. But ultimately, this is one of the movies that I love. Like, I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. I think it's wonderful. I think it's probably one of the greatest movies made, uh, you know, maybe not on a top million list or whatever. Like, you know, I don't know. It, it's somebody's top 10 movie somewhere. Um, I haven't placed it myself, but in looking at it in even more detail, I know why I like it even more. And I think primarily that's kind of why I do this podcast, because I find out why I like things even more. So kids up from his nap, I think that's going to, that's going to sign us out there. So, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for coming to my Ted talk on the QT and strictly hush hush. Okay, so once again, thanks for listening. Uh, just kind of doing some post-show stuff. It's been crazy busy 
but I remembered all this stuff right as I was finishing the editing. I am going to be appearing on Play Comics, a podcast hosted by Chris Osborne on the Gunna Geek Network uh, pretty soon, probably the 28th. That's not 100%, but I'm super excited about it, and I'm going to roll a promo for that podcast right now. Have you ever been reading through a stack of comics and thought, maybe I should see what the Sarkham Asylum game is all about? Or been playing Marvel vs. Capcom and felt like you were at a real disadvantage since you didn't know who half the characters were? Well, Play Comics is the show for you. I'm Chris, and each episode we take a look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material. So whether you know the comics and want to know how all these games work, or you know the games and want to find out where all this craziness came from, go check out Play Comics at playcomics.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And now that I rolled that promo, I, I kind of wanted to talk about a promo that I made, and this is super stupid. It's super dumb. I made a couple promos uh, a few months ago, and since I finally, I finally kind of you know made a little tiny piece of music, a little snippet of music, I'm going to roll this promo, which is oddly related. Um, all of the promos were equally as self-deprecating, probably, but... This one just seems poignant for the moment. It seems appropriate. Are you really interested in making music? If you are, this promo isn't for you. As you can tell, I just used Apple Live Loops to throw something together. I know this seems misleading, but I do like movies. Hi, I'm Mark D, IT guy, dad, and generally bad movie nerd. I host a podcast called Mark's Movie Collection that's all about going deep into the movies that I already own. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or that place where you get all your awesome, awesome podcasts. So yeah, again, very excited to be on Play Comics. Won't be talking about, well, we'll be talking about a comic, but more movie. And I hope to see everybody there. Awesome, awesome podcasts, really going deep into a lot of subjects. So again, on the cute, that's, that can't be a sign off for normally I always have this problem I always have this problem and I will maybe forever have this problem maybe this is a problem of confidence but uh, don't forget to uh, like subscribe and uh, click the bell for more alerts so you don't miss a video I guess I stole that from everybody on YouTube don't start trying to do the right thing boyo you haven't had the practice